This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Uh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. You're listening listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. Let's start. Let's start. Okay. I'm Jad Abumrad here with Shimol Yai. And this is The Vanishing of Harry Pace, a miniseries on Radio Lab. So we finished our trilogy on the many lives of Harry. Past and present. And uh, we're going to keep expanding outward. I know we call this series The Vanishing of Harry Pace, but he was not the only one to be vanished. There are others like him who were similarly vanished, sometimes by their own design. Now, one of the things that has been really frustrating for us in reporting this series, haunting even, is that our central guy... We don't have Harry's voice. No. We don't have it. Harry got all of these other voices on records. Like Ethel Waters, Trixie Smith. I mean, yeah, take Ethel as an example. When you hear her voice. (laughs) I come along in that era. I was working in nightclubs. (laughs) Like when you hear her speak, it makes all the difference. You know her. I could sing, dance, talk, and whistle. I'd make you laugh and I'd make you cry. But Harry's kind of lost to us. Yeah. So one of the things we did early on is we called every archive that we could find, every record collector asking, what do you got? What do you got? We, we, were, we were trying to find something. And along the way, we, uh, that's when we met a dude that we did not expect to meet, a contemporary of Harry and his story. Yeah, it kind of became one of the most inspiring musical tales that I've ever heard. It actually began uh, with a misunderstanding on our part. We were actually hunting for Harry. It has a picture of the label. On the back, it has uh, who's in it and the logo for Black Swan, I guess. Tim, can you say your name and your title so we have it? (laughs) My name is Tim Brooks. I'm a uh, media historian. We found our way to Tim because he's one of the few people who have records from the Black Swan label. In fact, people told us, you got to talk to this guy because he had just released a compilation called Black Swan. Do you, and, want, do you want me to go get a copy yeah, of it? Yeah, we would love that. And these are all recordings from the Black Swan label, like the early years? No, no. Actually, this is called Black Swans with an S on it. Turns out the compilation was not what we thought. Oh. And it includes, for the first time, the uh, Roland Hayes, the historic Roland Hayes recordings that were made in 1917-18. Tim started telling us about this guy named Roland Hayes and these very old recordings that he'd hunted down with great difficulty. And we were like, cool, it's not what we're looking for. Don't really want to go into this because this guy never recorded for the Black Swan label. But before we could redirect... I've got some of the actual records here. He pulled out this 100-year-old 78. Like this. Oh, look at that. He just started playing us stuff from this guy. 
<laughs> so, so this is a guy named Roland Hayes. Uh, what is he singing here? Uh, well, uh, this is the clown scene in Pagliacci. Uh, An very, Italian opera, 1892. Very dramatic moment. He's dressed in a clown outfit, but he's a tragic clown. And tragedy is all around, yet he has to put on this face of, of happiness and laughs and so forth. So he proceeded to tell us about this guy, Roland Hayes, who at the turn of the 20th century loved opera, like really obscure opera. Ach, Kleiner Dinja by Wolf. Is that on your <laughs> oh. playlist? <laughs> How about Trocknet Nick? No. Trocknet Nick? Warner der Methmuth by Beethoven. <laughs> And, you know, it was fine. We were just kind of going with it. But then he pulled out this other record. He also does an a cappella version of Were You There, the spiritual, mm. which is absolutely hair-raising. What is Were You There about? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there oh, when they wow. crucified? Sometimes it makes me want to tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Ooh. Lord? Could we, find uh, that? Could we find that recording of his? Oh, yeah. Uh, his technique was despite uh, Vesti Lajurba that you just heard, uh, was to kind of under-volume some songs. Mm. It's hard to describe, but the, the way he would sing was very intense, but it wasn't loud. It was mm. not mm. meant to overpower you. Uh, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord is obviously a song about a, a huge, hugely tragic and emotional event. And to sing it, not, were you there with it? But to sing it so quietly and with no orchestra and no instruments and just with passion, yeah. but a controlled passion. That was often how he performed many of these Do you songs. mind if I, I'm so curious to hear it now. Do you mind if I just put it on for two sure. seconds? Sure. Yeah. Are you there oh, wow. when they crucified my very chilling. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? You can see he had a, a technique that was just electrifying. Wow, that's powerful. Yeah, ethereal almost, yeah. What I hear in there is somebody who's trying to communicate to an audience directly. This is Terrence McKnight, musician, classical music host of WQXR. He worked with us on this episode. You know, sometimes when you hear an old recording like that, the vibrato is faster or, or something about the pronunciation of a word suggest a time period. 
but that was, I mean, that was just in the center of, of timelessness. It's an eerie feeling to hear a voice from a hundred years ago sound like it could be singing to you now at a rally or a church. And at that point, we were just like, wait, who is this guy? So it's quite a story. It's quite a story, actually. Well, Roland Hayes is, I call him, the father of African-American concert singers. But God is so high. What he accomplished was extraordinary. Christopher? Yes, exactly right. That's it. After Tim Rabbit holed us, we ended up calling uh, these two guys, Christopher Brooks and Robert Sims. They wrote a biography of Roland Hayes. Do you want me to start or Robert, do you want to start? Go on, Christopher. Well, Roland Hayes' childhood... He was born in 1887, I believe. Georgia, specifically. Not too far from where Harry Pace was born. He was essentially one generation beyond legalized enslavement. Apparently, his mother had been born a slave. That's Fanny. That's Mama. He was one of uh, seven children, six boys and one, one girl. And he lost four of his siblings in pretty quick succession. Do we but know how, Christopher? We don't know. But what we do know is that he was the main breadwinner of the family. Now, apparently, when he was a teen... His neighbor, white man, had a phonograph... And had a collection of classical recordings. And of course, Caruso. Well, Caruso was the name that, that people talked about. Caruso was the guy. Enrico Caruso, the greatest opera star in history by some accounts. He built the record industry in many ways. He was such a celebrity. Apparently, this neighbor played young Roland Hayes a Caruso record. And Hayes heard that voice. and was transfixed by it. Roland Hayes would write that when he heard Caruso sing, the heavens opened up to him. And the beauty of what could be done with the human voice, it overwhelmed him. That happened for me. No way. Wow. That happened for me. I was, I was in school, and I didn't know exactly. I knew I loved music. I knew... Um, that I wanted to be in music, but I didn't know exactly what it would look like until uh, my Glee Club director gave me a ticket to go hear the Atlanta Symphony and Andre Watts was on the bill that night. And man, when that dude walked out and started playing. The heavens opened up and the angels were black. Oh, <laughs> I love wow. it. Anyhow, getting back to Roland, uh, not too long after his Caruso moment, he was at work. He had a job working in a foundry. You know where they do metal and all that? Go on, Christopher. It was a paperweight foundry. He was working at this factory that took raw steel and shaped it into fancy paperweights. And something quite dramatic happened at that foundry. They were, it was, uh, the, the metal had to be melted and Roland Hayes gives accounts that he would wear these big brogane shoes, but you had to wear them loose because if the, the hot metal landed on them, you needed to get your feet out of them, like kick them off very quickly. So on this particular day in 1903, Roland Hayes... He was in a conveyor belt. 
pouring hot metal into containers. And apparently, he was standing too close to the belt. And his clothes were caught um, in this conveyor belt, and it dragged him through this machinery three times. Oh, God. And uh, they thought that Roland Hayes was dead. And when he arrived at home in a full body cast... His mother ran away out of the house because she thought that they were bringing home a corpse. And that she had indeed lost another child. There was no nearby hospital that would keep a Black man overnight. So Roland basically had to recover at home in this full body cast. But astoundingly, he did recover. And this was just a few months after he encountered those Caruso records. And he thought his recovery was a sign. He, he thought that uh, God saved him yeah. for the purpose yeah. of being a great singer. An epiphany, wow. if you will. And he cited his survival as one of the several epiphanies that he would have over the course of his life. Wow, how well, did he talk about it? He believed that it was like um, the epiphany of the Apostle Paul. In the New Testament, Paul is on his way to Damascus when suddenly he's struck blind. He believes he'll never get his sight back. But then, after three days, it returns. And from then on, he's a believer. And uh, he believed that this was his moment, that he was supposed to come forth and, and do this singing thing. Hayes' story from then on is one of the most inspiring stories in, in Lost Sounds, I think, because, boy, he was one of those people that, that just knocked down walls. Uh, he, he dedicated himself to that field. And, of course, everybody laughed at him. An African-American in that field? you got to be crazy. Well, his mother said to him, hey, let's be practical about this. White people don't want to hear their European heirs coming out of a black face. And black people might not be too keen on that either. There was this thought that um, you were selling out if you were playing the music of the oppressor. Music Mm. that was created on our backs. What are you thinking? But boy, the more you told him no, the more he was absolutely determined. And he... uh, Walked from the farm toward the north because he knew the only chance he would ever have would be in the north. He made it as far as Nashville, where Fisk University is located. Fisk University was founded in 1866, a year after the Civil War ended. It's where Du Bois studied, actually. It was created for all the freed men of Nashville. Uh, Even though he didn't have a high school education, he managed to ingratiate himself into the student body at Fisk. (laughs) The school was so underfunded that it relied on its a cappella choir to tour across the country and make money to keep the college going. Roland joined them. And there was a teacher there who sort of adopted him and took him under her wing. He would study with her in the day, and then at nights and on the weekend, he would sing in a quartet on the side. Because Roland needed to make money. The teacher found out that he had been singing outside of school, and for some reason, she really didn't like that. She had been paying 
his tuition throughout his time at Fisk. And so when that came about, she withdrew it and said, now you, you have to leave. Kicked out of Fisk, Roland continues to travel north, past Tennessee, through Virginia, D.C., Maryland. Then he made his way up to Boston. He had no money still. He got some menial jobs. First of all, arriving in Boston, he auditioned for five voice teachers. Three of them said to him, hey, this is impossible. An African-American man can't have a concert career. Robert says he did eventually find a teacher, a white man. But this teacher, who ended up loving Roland like a son, would not allow Roland to take lessons in his studio. Because if he did, all of his white students would leave him. So he wanted Hayes to come to his home on the weekends and come in the Mm -hmm. back door. But Hayes, he kept promoting himself, doing singing wherever he could, gaining followers and people who believed in him. And in 1917, he couldn't get booked at any major venues because they wouldn't have him. He's black. So he finally scraped up enough money to rent Symphony Hall in Boston. Rent it. <laughs> rent he rented it. a whole hall? <laughs> With orchestra. And how did he get people to go? Yeah, there's an interesting story uh, behind that. Apparently, the first thing he did was appeal directly to some big donors like the governor of Massachusetts' wife. He went to the governor's wife and she said, I'm not about to sign on something that's going to be a failure before it even starts. She says, no, I can't have my name associated. So what Roland Hayes does, he gets a local telephone book and starts calling people. I just want to tell you about this new dynamic singer by the name of Roland Hayes who will uh, do a performance at Symphony Hall on so-and-so date. Apparently he did this for weeks on end, just calling random numbers from the phone book. He paid for advertisements in the paper, paid to print his own tickets. And all of his followers sold tickets for him around the city. Wow. And the insurance company where he worked, you know, everybody, the president, everybody bought the tickets. And uh, that strategy, according to him, worked. Because the entire facility was rented. Good room in my father's kingdom. And the concert was a huge success, <laughs> even though he had to pay for it himself and go into debt and everything. <laughs> but they still wouldn't hire him. I mean, the record companies wouldn't record him. I told you, this guy was like a battery gram. Amazing. <laughs> so he, he decided he was going to make his own records if, if Victor and Columbia would not record him. Uh, and he did. To make an, a recording was like a $300 deal. That's like $6,000 today. And he, again, raised money and paid to have custom recordings paid, essentially. How would he do that? How did he do it? Yeah, would he just go into the studio and pay for the space in a room? Yeah, well, there were two record companies that ran the business then. They owned the patents, and one of them was Columbia. Columbia had a side business, which was a personal recording service. And if you paid them enough, you could come into their studios with their technicians and make a record. You know, for the price, you would get a couple of records. And if you wanted to pay more, they'd make more copies for you. But he raised enough money. He went into the Columbia Studios. It was acoustic recording, but there were people who really knew how to do it well. Hmm. And and he had to hire the orchestra, uh, which cost (laughs) extra. And he, and, he, and he made, uh, what, nine different recordings. He deliberately made different types of, uh, recorded different types of repertoire. He wanted to do 
opera, like Veste la Jouba that you just heard. Uh, he wanted to do some spirituals, so by and by and things like that. I'm going to play that as you talk. He showed how he could be the equal in each of these different kinds of recordings, the spirituals, the classical numbers, popular concert numbers. And he sold these by mail or by agents out around the country who would literally get a copy of the record from <laughs> uh, him in Boston, take it around from door to door and play it for local black families, middle-class black families, and say, here's one of our own on record. You'll never find this on the major labels. Wow. And you've heard of Roland Hayes, because he's famous in the black press and everything. This guy he's sounds like a one-man record label. Yeah, it's right, that's right. He lost a lot of money on it, but he didn't care, because he wanted to get his voice out there. And then uh, he got some support, especially in Boston and the Northeast. He was able to travel to Europe, You know, when he went overseas, they were, you know, hide your daughter. You know, this black man is coming, close down the windows because he's dangerous. Somebody's going to be pregnant before he leaves. All that kind of nonsense. Through some friends, Roland had hooked up a couple of recitals. And one of those friends, a religious leader, invited Roland Hayes to sing at a church service for Lent, where Roland Hayes sang, Were you there? Were you there? It made such an impression at the church service. People were in tears. Very unlike the British. Unlike the British, yes. The next day, Roland got the call that he would sing for the King and Queen of England. Wow. The story is he fainted from that news. Oh, wow. He performed for the Queen, or the King, I guess, uh, and uh, his career took off. Good news, chariots are coming, good news. Chariots coming, good news. The chariots... He is literally barnstorming through Europe. France, England, Czechoslovakia. Everywhere he goes, he is really um, tearing up, I mean, audiences. Women are fainting. But then... He arrives in Germany. And that is a whole other situation entirely. That's after the break. Science Reporting on Radio Lab is supported in part by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This is Carrie Kloon from LaGrange, Illinois. Radio Lab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Radio Lab is supported by Betterment. Let's talk about you and your money. You like your free time. You like to relax every now and then. You like to feel totally chill. But your money, your money likes to work. And Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. While you're catching up on sleep, your money is up early, earning 11 times the national average in a high-yield cash account. Your money is a multitasker, diversified in expert-built portfolios of low-cost ETFs. And your money is optimized with automated tax-efficient strategies, just like the pros use. Your money is a total workhorse, so you don't have to be. Because you've got Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. 
Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. I'm David Remnick, and each week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, my colleagues and I unpack what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers, Jelani Cobb on race and justice, Jill Lepore on American history, Vincent Cunningham and Gia Tolentino on culture, Bill McKibben on climate change, and many more. To get the context behind events in the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Vanishing of Harry Pace, a miniseries on Radiolab. I'm here with Shimo Liai. And that's Jadu Bomrad. <laughs> Today, a story about the, a contemporary of Harry Pace, Roland Hayes, who refused to be told that he could not sing opera, ends up singing for the king and queen of England, barnstorming his way across Europe. But then... To get back to the story, he arrives in Germany. Yes. It's May 1924. Christopher, would you mind reading that passage from your book? We'll probably get an actor later to read it, but for now, could we get it in your voice? Where do you want me to start? Uh, if you can start at page okay. 120. Two or All three right. pages. The Weimar Republic represented a complex... The Weimar Republic presented a complex period in German history. Having suffered defeat at the hands of the Allied forces, Germany had also been stripped of its colonial possessions in Africa. The final humiliation, as far as the Germans were concerned, was the presence of Francophone Africans throughout the Rhineland as a policing force, with the authority to arrest and detain. There was fear among the German population that the Africans and their Afro-German children would lead to the bastardization of the German race. In the middle of all this, Roland Hayes shows up and starts running ads in the local German newspapers about his concert. Which included a six-inch headshot. Of him. The ad stated he would sing the leader of Beethoven, Schubert, Schumann, Brahms, Strauss, and Wolf. Wow, so he was going full German. Well, <laughs> uh, Berlin now was different because Berlin is this uh, bastion of high art. He is uh, literally singing at the Beethoven style or Beethoven Hall in Berlin. Immediately, open letters start appearing in newspapers saying this concert is a sacrilege. That the best they could hope for from a black man is to hear quote unquote jazz or the cotton songs of Georgia. All very insulting. Mm -hmm. Yes. The night of the concert was tense. The night of the concert was tense. The Berlin house was filled to its thousand-seat capacity. Backstage, Roland braced himself for what he suspected would be an intractable audience. Unlike in previous performances where the custom was to dim the lights as the performers walked on stage, Roland... Roland and Lawrence... That's his pianist. Walked into near total darkness and took their respective positions in a single spotlight aimed at where the tenor was to stand. As if he were somehow a target. And when he walks out, he is booed and hissed. Booed and hissed by what would turn out to be um, the, uh, I, I, the, the Nazis. Over the course of a minute, it grew louder and louder. The barrage 
of protest continued for close to 10 minutes while Roland stood perfectly still. With his eyes closed. And he just stands there, very upright, with his eyes closed, with his accompanist there. He felt a calm come over him as the audience continued its demonstration. In his mind, he uttered his standard prayer while facing an audience before performance. God, please blot out Roland Hayes. Lord, blot out Roland Hayes so that they only see thee. So that the people will see only thee. It just, it makes me want to shout because, (laughs) because, because he's, Lord, let your spirit come out and, and let it, and let, and let it move the people. Gradually, the booing and hissing stops. Everything goes silent. And he doesn't even turn his head to signal. He just gives a slight nod of his head to begin. Roland stood with his eyes closed and his head upright. You are calm, the mild peace. You are longing. And what stills it? I consecrate to you full of pleasure and pain as a dwelling here my eyes and heart. final climactic section of the song did Roland give more volume to his otherwise pianissimo singing. The tabernacle of your eyes by your radiance alone is illumined or fill it completely or fewless close of the performance, there was total silence throughout the house. Only then did he slowly open his eyes. The spirit had done its work. Still stunned by what it had just experienced, the audience was jolted back into reality by the sound of a lone, sustained clap followed by a few sparsely isolated claps, 
which quickly turned into cheers. Roland gave a faint smile of acknowledgement, as if to say to his doubting Berliners. Now what do you think of that? But I guess after you go through a machine a few times, you know? <laughs> yeah. Took a lot of courage to be able to do that. Terrence, do you have any way of explaining it? I mean, just to stand up there by yourself, with all of those people booing and hissing you, and to still be, to still have that stillness? Where does that come from? I would imagine when you're in that moment, you have to pull on something, pull from something. I remember first doing concerts, you know, hosting big concerts. I would always say, come on, grandma. I would be backstage and I would bring her out with me Hmm. because I knew some of the things that they went through and lived through and were able to come out on the other side of when I get up into a situation where I don't exactly know what's going to happen. That's where that kind of courage comes from. Yeah. Got all my ancestors up here with me. You all move back so I can get up to this microphone and, and, and speak. They could have thrown anything at him mm-hmm. while he's standing on that stage. But he just closed his eyes and went to a place, probably a place that his mother took him as a child, a, a, a deep place of, of faith. And uh, he came out victorious, not only for himself, before so many people that looked like him. He was a shining example for the possibilities of America. It's interesting. When he came back to the U.S., having all this acclaim in Europe, then they would hire him. You know, that qualified him finally. And he was the first Black artist to uh, be recorded by labels. He was very picky, though. He didn't want to record unless they paid him a lot of money. (laughs) Well, Uh, damn right, after what he's gone through. But he could be a tough customer. Tim says even when the white-owned labels wanted to record him. He listened to the playbacks of these recordings. He wasn't satisfied with them. Uh, And he said, I don't want them issued. And he said, well, we won't pay you. And he said, I don't care. Well, there was a recording contract that he had with a British recording company where he had recorded gorgeously. But because the deal wasn't a good deal financially, he cut the masters. Like the original recording. Took a large pair of shears and cut them in two. He broke the masters. (laughs) He was such a purist that he wasn't going to do anything that didn't meet his standards, uh, anything for which he wasn't properly paid, uh, which is one of the reasons we don't have much film of him, because others, Paul Robeson and people like that, made a lot of films later on, especially when sound came in. And Hayes said, uh, only if you pay me a huge amount of money. (laughs) (laughs) I really like him. (laughs) I find it interesting that he was so self-possessed that he, in a way, possessed himself out of memory. It's like he vanished himself, sort of like Harry, but for a different reason. And also, I think, Jet, that Black people had worked for so little for free for so long Mm. that they were so determined not to allow somebody to make money off of their backs anymore. 
by my estimation, and I've done really the only study of this part of his career, uh, he was able to press maybe 500 copies of each of these. Tim is referring to a set of recordings which were some of the only ones that still exist from his prime. Because there were so few copies made of them, finding these records, they're very rare. When they come up for auction, they're very expensive. But over the years, I've been able to assemble most of them, probably have the largest collection of them. There's only nine total. One nobody's ever found, the other eight I've, I've got either in the original or a tape somebody sent me. As we were talking with Tim about how hard he has had to work to find Roland's records, I kept thinking about that idea of Roland Hayes intentionally cutting the masters, not allowing recordings of himself to get out into the future to people like Tim, people like us, unless he got paid. And all of that took on a whole new meaning when we ended up speaking to one of Tim's colleagues a guy that you also heard in episode one. I'm Bill Doggett. I am an African-American performing arts historian, early sound archivist. Bill Doggett, like Tim, is a historian, an educator, and a record collector. He has a pretty large collection of Black Swan records, actually the sixth largest in the world, according to his estimation. This is Reveille Hughes at the dawn of her career. And uh, he shares them online. This is from... YouTube videos. The Black Swan label. This is the very first recording by an African-American soprano. Let's take a listen. In talking with Bill... I'm grateful I have the collection that I've amassed, but there are no African-Americans in the field. The question naturally came up, why, as we were looking for record collectors, did the field seem to be overwhelmingly white? Like, Bill was the first Black collector we found. As an African-American specialist in this world, what I have seen is the legacy of ownership, of the idea of ownership and of cultural appropriation by white male collectors who have come to fetishize black men, who's not black women, the blue, not the black women who sing blues, but the black men who recorded, you know, at the dawn of, of the race records. He told us about this one example. The most famous white collector in black blues music, famously, I think this must have been in 2014-15, paid $16,000 for this 178 RPM mm. record. Actually, when we checked eBay, the final price was 37000 for one record. This is a, a record of a black man singing in the 1920s who not only himself, his family, but his entire ancestors had never seen $16,000 ever. Wow. But yet a white man who has an infinitesimal amount of money, he himself and others have created this frenzy, this tornado of high pricing that is reminiscent for me of a slave auction, where how much can I get for this black man? That is... Wow. <laughs> this black, well, I'll bid 14000 No, I will bid fifteen. But this is a black man's music, a black man's record. He, he got $25 or $30 for the session. But now, you know, this white guy owns, owns you. <laughs> it's, it, it's conflicted. That thought from Bill Doggett definitely cast things in a different light. 
There are recordings of Roland Hayes that exist, of him later in his career, and we played you some. But everything we played you was something that he defined on his own terms. And everything that wasn't, he snapped in half with metal shears. After that concert in Germany, Roland went back to Georgia, to that Georgia plantation where his mother had once been a slave, and he bought the whole property right out from under the man who had once owned his mother and grandfather. That guy was still living there on the land that was now Roland's, and out of mercy, Roland let him stay there until he died. One last thing. Robert Sims, who with Christopher Brooks wrote the biography of Roland Hayes, he got in touch with Roland's daughter, Africa Hayes, and she searched through some boxes in her house and found a recording of her father speaking. This is the only audio that we know of where Roland is simply speaking. I wonder if people generally are aware of their serious and intensely spiritual nature. My people comforting the oppressed and envisioning hope to the future, both in this world and the next, through them, the Spirit of God and the vision of a better world became a unifying and living force. The hope of freedom was a source of deep-seated spiritual strength for my people, and their hearts murmured when it was not expedient for their lips to speak it. One cannot imprison the soul, nor can adversity crush the spirit in man. So there you go. The story of Roland Hayes. Next week, we have our final episode. Good news, chariots are coming, good news. Chariots coming, good news. The chariots are coming and I don't want you to leave me behind. Good news. Until then, The Vanishing of Harry Pace was created by Jad Abumrad and Shima Oliai and is presented as a collaboration between Awesome Audio, Radio Lab, and Radio Diaries. The series is based on the book Black Swan Blues, The Hard Rise and Brutal Fall of America's First Black-Owned Record Label by Paul Slade. Lord, I want two wings to veil my face. Lord, I want two Our editorial advisors are Kiese Lehman, Imani Perry, Cord Jefferson, and Terrence McKnight. Jamie Floyd is our consulting producer. Our fact checker is Natalie Mead. Series artwork was created by Katya Herrera. A big thank you to actor William Jackson Harper for lending his voice to Christopher and Robert's biography, Roland Hayes, The Legacy of an American Tenor. And thanks also to the Clappers and the Booers who helped us bring that Berlin scene to life. Lillian Zhu, Eli Cohen, Theodora Kuslin, Sarah Sandback, Andrew Golis, and Marianne Nesdil. Were you there when they crucified my Lord. In this episode, we also featured music from Robert Sims Sings the Spirituals of Roland Hayes, also Tim Brooks' CD, Black Swans, with an S, and Bill Doggett's collection from his YouTube channel. You can find a link to all of those, as well as the other Roland Hayes songs we used, at radiolab.org slash harrypace. And I guess that's it. Thanks for listening. One more episode coming at you in about a week. 
Radio Lab was created by Jed Abumrad and is edited by Soren Wheeler. Lulu Miller and Latif Nasser are our co-hosts. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Jeremy Bloom, Becca Bressler, Rachel Kusick, David Gable, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Sindhu Nyanasambandam, Matt Kielty, Annie McEwen, Alex Neeson, Sarah Kari, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Sarah Sandback, Karine Leong, and Candace Wong. Our fact checkers are Diane Kelly and Emily Krieger. <laughs>